If you're listening to this podcast and if you would like to learn more about BDD and Cucumber, you should head over to cucumber.io slash school and check out our videos. We've got three hours of premium quality content and you will get 10% discount if you use the code cucumberpodcast in one word. This week on the Cucumber Podcast, Matt Wynn speaks to Sal Freudenberg about inclusive collaboration and neurodiversity. We join the conversation with Matt explaining why he invited Sal on. We, like as a company, are all about helping all of the stakeholders in software projects to collaborate better, to, to get along better, to understand one another better, so that they can make better software and enjoy it more and um, you know, waste less time at work, have a more enjoyable time at work. And um, I like I personally have been on a sort of a hunt for for practices to make that possible, like all my career, really. And I came across Agile and um, that seemed to make things a lot better than other ways of doing software projects that I'd experienced. And that was good. Um, But I've over the years with Agile noticed some discomfort around like different personalities and that there are some people that I've had on teams that I thought really struggled with some of the agile practices. Um, like, I mean, for example, I particularly remember this brilliant programmer who I was on a team with a few years ago and, um, we got to know each other well enough for me to know that he had a real problem with like personal space. And when we, when we did pairing, which I, I got to know that he didn't particularly like doing pairing. Um, he was uncomfortable with, me or anyone else sitting too close to him he needed to have like space around him but i think he also needed to have time when he wasn't pairing um and i like initially found that a bit difficult to understand because uh, i'm fairly happy to pair all day long with people and that was pretty much what i did in that job um and so over the years i've kind of noticed that there are these maybe assumptions that we make on agile teams about that there has to be like one kind of person that's good at doing agile and um and it's sort of, it, 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 it's made me sad that we're excluding some people from being able to still be part of software teams and get the best out of them. Um, and so I was really happy when I started seeing your stuff because it is really, I mean, you're the only person that I've seen talk about this, I think, um, that, we, that this, is a, this is kind of a problem that we can now see because we've been doing Agile for a while. Um, and it's... So it's a, it's um it's, it's a really nice thing. So that was why I wanted to get you on, um and to and to sort of give your campaign some some publicity too. So I suppose like maybe pairing is a good place to start, isn't it? Because that's where your research started. So it's good to just give people an idea of what this is all about. Yeah. Um. So my research originally, which is now I don't know, fifteen years old, I guess, was looking at um collaboration in agile teams particularly focus on pairs um, and how they work together and I analyzed nearly 15,000 sentences of pair programmer dialogue to look at some of the some of the kind of folklore around pair programming and and uh, the extent to which that kind of bore out in when you actually analyze what people talk about 
because for me at the time, I just thought, well, you know, pairing, collaborating is all about talking. So if I really want to know about it, then the way to find out about it is to uh, record what people say and analyse that. Um, and some interesting things came out of that. So I saw, you know, at the time, people were very clearly saying the driver works at a very detailed level of abstraction and the navigators thinking about the real world and all that kind of stuff. And my statistics didn't show that at all. Um, my results kind of showed that they're working at the same level of granularity, which you'd kind of expect, otherwise it's quite difficult to have a conversation, um, and that they're both together jumping around between the real world and the code. Um, so so I was quite – and then I started looking at it a little bit more and realised that actually when pairs are programming together, they're actually part of a broader ecosystem of the other people in the team that they're overhearing, that are overhearing them, the artefacts that they're using, which is not just the – development tools but also the you know the world around them so the one of the stories that I liked telling a lot um, and still do is a pair that um, I recorded um, and this particular pair I, I videoed as well and they had a little ball of paper clips on the desk and um, while one of them was was driving the other one had his bullet ball of paper clips and he'd move these paper clips around like they were a mouse and he'd kind of tap them when they were doing mouse clicks and stuff and then um eventually when they got to something tricky to do they both sat back and stopped talking for a bit and he put down the paper clips and then so so that that all kind of seemed a little bit a little bit unusual to start off with but then the really interesting thing that happened was without anybody saying anything the other person who was driving before picked up the paper clips and that kind of automatically indicated to the other person that he wanted him to drive so then he went to the keyboard and started typing and I don't even think they knew they were doing it so then I was kind of like okay so there's more to all of this than talking and that's where that that's that's kind of the the original kind of genesis of of of, of the idea that maybe it wasn't all about talking um, and then as I read more about collaboration, collaborated more with teams of people, um, and then, um, started looking into, um, autism and, and neurodiversity after my son got diagnosed with autism, I realized that actually, you know, there, there are lots of different kinds of minds. There are lots of different kinds of thinkers, but irrelevant of all of that. And I can, I kind of already knew this because of creativity and models and things, everybody needs quiet time and the quiet time's just as important in the collaboration as the um, yeah. as the as the noisy time and, and and that's what we're doing you know the silence workshops and things to sort of ex help people explore a little bit more what does it mean to quietly to co collaborate yeah so the silence workshop is definitely something that we should unpack because that was a fascinating experience at, at lean agile scotland um do, do i mean do you want to get into that now like why why you think it's interesting to try doing collaboration in in silence yeah so there were there were two there are two kind of slants to that one which was you know we when we're collaborating in general um we we all need some quiet time to just incubate new ideas and come up with novel solutions and all that kind of stuff so there's that side of it from a creativity point of view but um Catherine Kirk who's kind of the co-founder of the um, inclusive collaboration campaign with me and I had both seen organizations and teams where um people were being stifled in the collaboration you know people's voices weren't being heard and no matter how careful we are and we know we do a lot of things within the agile space where we'll spend a couple of minutes writing quietly onto post-it notes or whatever 
But actually, there are still people who like to think things through very carefully in advance before they say stuff. Um, and they were being talked over. Um, their voices won't be heard. In some situations, it was, it was becoming quite toxic and they were getting kind of bullied as well. Um, so we originally started using silence as a way of helping, particularly kind of higher up, exec level people, um, understand that 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 collaborating quietly um is important and we sort of just wanted to turn that up to 11 for people to people so it was kind of like well you know we're in this kind of community where we like to turn things up to the extreme so what happens if we turn the quiet up to the extreme let's get people silently collaborating um and initially i did that a couple of times internally at companies um doing lego builds which was which was fine people got quite invested in the lego builds but it didn't feel quite the same as the sort of stressful intense wanting to succeed at what you're doing that 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 you kind of get in the workplace and hence we had quite a novel activity that we did for lean agile scotland yeah that's great um I, listeners, I uh, I, d- I didn't say that this this session that Sal ran um, at the conference was so popular. They had to have a lottery for who could get in. Um, but I just stood outside the door and and uh, hoped I could try and get a sneak in. And I snuck in at the end because they got one no show. Um, so I got their seat. And it was uh, yeah, we had to do quite a complicated task in complete silence. Um, over an hour or did we? Um, it was an hour and that's the longest silence workshop I've ever done as well so before I've I've done half an hour and wondered whether initially initially because it was quite an experimental idea when I first did it and I was kind of like I don't even know if people are going to manage to stay silent for half an hour um but in the original ones they did and in fact they asked whether they could carry on in the breaks with the activity kind of afterwards so that was interesting as well to see how it was different when they talked and when they didn't um so we thought we'd just extend it a bit more and and do an hour uh and that was driven a little bit by the activity that we chose because it was quite complicated and you need an hour to 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 do it um so do you want to say what we did uh, well, to you, because I, I, I get the sense that you want to kind of keep it as a surprise if you want to run the session again. Well, I think the surprise is out, really, because <laughs> it, I think it got tweeted to thousands and thousands of people um, on Twitter um, afterwards. So we wanted to keep it as a surprise for Lean Agile Scotland because we wanted to kind of have a, a, a you know, a bit of a a bit of a bit of impact really for launching the campaign um but i think that i think the surprise is out there now so um yeah we made prosthetic hands for landmine victims um which is a kit that you can get from um from a company called helping hands um you physically make these prosthetic limbs that then when you finish you um put them in a decorated case you take a photo of yourself um, the team that have made them that goes in the case as well a little polaroid um, and a note and then it gets sent off for somebody to actually really use so um quite yeah it was quite a kind of profound activity but also one that people were fully invested in because they knew they were going to be actually used and really helping somebody so it felt like that was that was getting close to sort of a similar feeling that people might have in the workplace when they're doing stuff yeah 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 it was fun but but it was quite it was a lot more tricky than doing something out of lego definitely and like physically 
you know, so so you you've got these instructions that you've never seen those instructions before. You never, I'd never done anything like that really before. And there were all these like fiddly little bits of metal and springs, and you had to figure out which one was which and which one in the right place. And and you're working in a team of three, so you've got to be communicating with each other. And then you know sometimes things go wrong, or you see somebody's going to do a thing that you think is wrong, and then you sort it out and you want to celebrate with each other. I mean, to do all of that in silence, and it was fascinating to see. Well, so what uh, Sal and Catherine had us do was to each time we kind of felt the urge to speak to make a little note. So we collected up all these little notes during the hour of all of the times when we felt compelled to use our voices to communicate. And and then in the end, we broke those into two lists so we could see which of them, which of those points when we felt the urge to communicate had actually turned out to still be necessary. Like, I wish I I still wish I could have said that. Um, and which of them turned out to to kind of pass and it didn't matter in the end. And it was amazing to me to see how many times I had been tempted to open my mouth and say something. And in the end, it turned out not to have mattered. And I think a, a lot of people commented on that in the session, that like especially about kind of maybe places where you might have almost made the mood of the group worse by opening your mouth. It, it allowed the problem to sort of pass um, and you could deal with it more quickly. Mm. Yeah, and that was really profound with that group. Actually, one thing that one of the things that came out was when we were having the discussion afterwards. Somebody that people were talking about um, celebrating a lot as one of the things that they wish they could do, but they also said, "I wanted to say sorry. I wanted to apologize when things went wrong, and I wanted to sort of explain why I'd done things wrong, and I couldn't, and that felt weird." And then eventually, when we kind of dug away at that a little bit more and said, "Well, what happened instead?" People said, well, you know, I just had to kind of shrug and carry on, um, which is great because that's, you know, that's the kind of safe to fail. Oh, that's interesting. Carry on anyway. The, 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 you know, what if I learn and, uh, but not, but not to get too hung up about not getting it right that we want to foster in the workplace. So I thought that was really lovely when that came out of the workshop that people would, people had found that. But I, it was astonishing. And as you say, it was a tricky activity. There were some very, very tiny parts. And also there's one larger part that you really have to force in. And because everything up until that point has been quite delicate, it's quite nerve-wracking. Kind of, you got this big bit and you got really, really pushed to get it in. And, and, so, and so you kind of feel like, it was interesting even as um, a facilitator because you kind of feel like you want to reassure people like, yeah, you're doing the right thing. Yeah, you can push that hard and it's all fine. Um, but actually they learn much better by not having you intrude. So um, that's even as a facilitator, it's a fascinating process for sure. Um, and one of the things that we're hoping that that people people do is they have that learning about actually – you know, many times I jump in too quickly. I I I just want to make a noise or get heard or whatever, and 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 they get a chance to practice, sort of like sort of like building the muscle of their executive functioning. You know, the, the, which is the bit brain wise that that goes be- between you. Um, having an impulse to do something and then, you know, what actually you do or say. So it's kind of stretching that muscle a little bit and practicing so that hopefully we become more able to do that in our workplaces and general lives, which then means that we're no longer stifling these voices that um, are, are just important to hear, but that we're not hearing in, at work. Yeah. So I want, that was where I wanted to sort of tie this back to the neurodiversity thing, because I think um, neurotypical people 
would get a lot out of that silence workshop just to learn about themselves in the in the way we've been describing um and maybe that learning is something that will then make their workplaces and their teams sort of safer spaces for for people who are more neurodiverse um but i suppose what what i what i don't really understand fully and it would be really interesting to hear from you like what are the the patterns of of um the way people's are people are neuro atypical um that are helped by silence or kind of other things so like what i guess what are the kind of characters that you might meet in the workplace and um what are some good ways to behave around them or, or things that they need need or or don't need yeah so i, I think with with regards to the kind of silence silence piece and the, the quieter i think what we have to understand is it it's very tempting for us to live in a really comfortable place in our teams and organisations where we surround ourselves with people who are like us. Um, and the issue with that is that we're not going to get we're not going to get creative um, products. Uh, we're not going to solve the trickiest problems in the best kinds of ways. That diversity is actually not just kindness; it's it makes good business sense as well. And because of that, we need to find ways to. To, to work with all these different kinds of minds. Now, I've come at it very much from an autism point autism point of view because, um, you know, that's my kind of personal interest. My son's autistic. I score off the scale and all the autistic tests myself as well. Um, so it's been a fascinating personal discovery. But then also, you know, there's so much autism in IT. We know it's there. There's loads and loads of really compelling research that shows it's there. Um, and so these people who, and, and even if you don't just think about autism and you think about people who are introverted, or, um, or, or, or like you were saying about your um, your uh, person that you paired with who struggled a little bit with personal space, you you want to I think have an inclusive environment where you're supporting all those different kinds of people, right, and all those different kinds of minds and all those different kinds of ways of thinking. And what I think we've seen with agile is a it's almost like a complete pendulum swing within software development from actually your job's all about coming in in the morning, um, you've got a spec in front of you, you sit at your, at, your, at your computer, you can be isolated to a certain extent, you can be quiet, um, you can be in your cubicle or, or whatever um, with your headphones on and you know, you don't really need to interact with anybody unless you want to, to right the other end of the scale where I think I actually think there's been a bit of a misunderstanding about, you know, initially, and and I'm probably just about just as guilty of this as anyone else. When we started realizing, oh, you know, collaborating is really important. Having having a really tight feedback loop is really important for for creating the right kind of products. Um, working together is a, a huge joy, um, and 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 has so many benefits. What we then did, because we liked turning it up to 11, is we turned it all up to 11. So we said, okay, brilliant. Let's have exclusively open plan environments. Let's bash down all the, all the, all the walls. Let's um, make all our, all our um, ways we interact together highly, highly interactive, um, you know, and quite intensely extrovert-focused, really. Let's encourage people to think on their feet and um, have ideas and voice them and 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 all that kind of stuff. You know, 
in the moment and I think we're losing loads I think we've just we've just gone t- too far with that 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 point of it and I still believe in collaboration and I still think it's really important but I do think that you know there's a difference between having a team space and offering offering people different physical places that they can go as well being okay with people not looking busy at work because maybe they've gone for a stroll or they've gone to a quiet place for a little bit to have a think or um telling people in advance what kind of input you want in meetings or, you know, to just cater for different kinds of thinker that aren't loud, think on your feet kind of people that are more pensive, that like to think things through in advance, that maybe aren't so okay with lots and lots of social contact or lots and lots of um, noise in the workplace or whatever it might be. I mean, I try and not just focus on typically what, what we think about as neurodiversity but you know I've been in situations where an office has been refurbed for you know to, to look more agile and the lights have been changed and older people have struggled to read black text on a white sheet of paper because of the mm. glare. I think as well and, that, and that's sort of a similar thing like the often the people who end up in leadership positions in these organizations and I'm kind of thinking of myself here as well that you 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 get into a leadership position probably because you have a lot of those character traits of being quite extroverted able to think on your feet loud so you're comfortable in social situations and and it's easy for those people to then forget that uh not everybody in the organizations like that and needs to work like that and you know and needs a different different environment to be able to function and do do what they need to do um yeah so like a, a young sort of 30 40 something manager is not necessarily going to think about how the lighting is for somebody somebody older say yeah um what about so what about empathy because this is i remember uh um a great uh friend of mine somebody i really respect doing a, a talk about their um company it's basically kind of founded on xp really big company now talking about empathy being a strategic advantage for that company um, and that they hire for empathy sort of deliberately. And I know that for autism, right, that can be one of the sort of traits of autism is that it's hard to think about what's going on for somebody else. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So some people with autism do have do struggle do struggle with theory of mind, which is understanding that other people don't know or aren't or 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 feel the way that we do about about things that happen. Um, that there's there I mean all of this is sweeping generalizations, right? There's there's a huge range of people with autism, just like there's a huge range of neurotypical people, um, and I think. I think it's kind of broader than just that. I think there's a there's an issue with our um, our interview processes, our um, recruitment processes in general in the industry. Um, in the inadvertently, we screen out people with autism because the whole idea that you will be comfortable going into a room with one or sometimes even a panel of people that you've never seen before in an environment that's unusual, um, in in a, and kind of be expected to um, chat with them and maintain eye contact and uh, be very sociable. It, you know, somebody with autism, somebody, somebody autistic might really struggle with that. Um, and also, they may be a phenomenal software developer. 
the two things don't necessarily have to go together that that you know intense sociability and all that kind of stuff um so i think if anything this inclusive collaboration campaign is about not just understanding what diversity is and not just seeking out you know people in your team that might need a little bit more help but thinking about you know how could we just uh, how could we just provide an, an organization or an environment that's supportive for all different kinds of people and and we i think it's a, a similar issue that we see with any kind of diversity right gender diversity all that kind of stuff i saw a, a great talk about a lady was talking about gender diversity that said if you go into organizations and you just look at the kinds of things that are on the walls the kind of decor the kind of magazines people are reading the kind of whatever it doesn't look female friendly so as a woman when you go into an organization like that it doesn't it doesn't feel like somewhere that you belong um and it's the same kind of thing it's it's almost like our practices are making people not belong and i think that's i think that's sad from a from just from a human point of view uh, but i also don't think it's very good business sense either yeah so in a, in an agile team a typical agile team if you if you have someone who has let's say has autistic traits um what are some of the practices that they're going to struggle with and and what do you think you can do to make that team a more comfortable place for them to work to get the best out of them Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, so as you've already said, pairing might might be difficult. Certainly, intensive, full time, full on, um, side by side pairing might be hard. Um, uh, funnily enough, things like the daily scrum might be great. The daily stand up might be great because that same time, same place. There's not too much change. Same kind of questions that you'll be answering. So. So actually, that that can work really well, um, but but it's stuff like the 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 kind of open plan environments are things that people might struggle with. A lot of a lot of visual noise as well. So not just the sound noise, but loads of stuff on top, you know on the walls all around. People people buzzing about. That could be something that people struggle with. Um, the fact that. Um, you know, just a, just a lot of our a lot of our things are quite intensely collaborative. So, like retrospectives, I've always quite liked the fact that when you you know when you're facilitating a retrospective, you can you can kind of theme it in a particular way and say, hey, let's do something completely different this time. But actually, what I've now come to learn is saying, let's do something completely different. Let's all think on our feet and I don't know, make a giant collage or do whatever. That will work for some people, but actually absolutely won't work for other people. So if it's a surprise, the the person with autism is is sitting there and their their thinking is clouded by the the sort of confusion of the of the surprising uh recipe for the for the retrospective and that's blocking them from being able to actually contribute because they're they're just yeah i don't want to say freaking out but but um but they're that's making them that that's that's clouding their thinking to the point where they can't contribute yeah yeah and and sometimes we talk about autistic meltdowns which you see as you you know i certainly see with with my son as being very loud and very very obvious but sometimes those meltdowns can be the opposite they can be just completely shutting down and that's and that's actually more how if i'm if i'm in a situation where i'm kind of having a meltdown i just 
um, it's really noticeable because I'm uncharacteristically quiet because I'm not usually very quiet. So that I, I just totally shut down and don't speak. And it's almost like it's almost like I can't really even hear what's going on around me either. It's, it's sort of like yeah. I'm, I'm in an insulated bubble, if you like. Um, yeah, so people would struggle. The other thing is is even to think about, you know, social things that you do as a team. Like, what do you do socially when you uh, – do you, do you go out for particular kinds of meals? Do you do activities? Do you – like, do you go bowling? Because, I don't know, I really struggle with when there's lots of social interaction that's not very structured and I'm doing a physical activity as well. That's really tricky for me. Um when we go out for team meals, you know, is it a place that's really, really, really loud? Um, because again, I really struggle with that. In fact, I had to leave an event at a conference just recently that was like a big, you know, one of those um uh German umpar bands and all really interactive and all that kind of stuff. And I just couldn't I I, you know, didn't even make it to the first course of dinner because I couldn't hear what anyone was saying. I couldn't even think. I can't. So, and I know most people have probably experienced what that's like a little bit, where you can't think because it's, it's so loud. And I think what you've got to what you've got to realise is, um, for autists, that can feel like it's turned massively up so something that wouldn't wouldn't necessarily affect certain people it is like having that crazy environment I, I went to um I went to Vegas yeah. on my own and my husband was like please tell me someone's going to look after you because if you go into a place with loads of fruit machines and noise and lights flashing and all that kind of stuff he says I've just got this mental picture of you kind of curled up in a fetal position on a floor somewhere and someone having to scoop you out <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, so, so things that to other people aren't, aren't worrying or concerning. Um, and then there are loads of things we can do to help. So, you know, providing, providing optional spaces for people to go to, to have rest, to have breaks, understanding, you know, optionality in things that we're doing. So offering people the opportunity to contribute you know join in if they want to or not and that's fine allowing people to contribute in advance so Catherine did a beautiful experiment at one place that she was working where the environment had got very toxic and quite um quite difficult and people weren't feeling even though they were all saying oh no everything's fine um they just w weren't feeling able to say stuff so she ran a silent retrospective over weeks instead of instead of kind of hours or minutes um, and got people to uh, put post-it notes up on a wall um, with some themed questions. And the environment there had got so difficult that people even felt that they weren't able to do that um, because there were these kind of, there's this real extroversion pushing down on, 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 on people who are more introverted. And so they introduced a ghost scribe. So there was an anonymous email address you could use to send things you wanted to be written on post-it notes to a ghost scribe for them to put it up for you um and the stuff that came out of that was astonishing in terms of the like you have to really be ready for some honesty if you're going to do that right because people are going to say things that they normally wouldn't feel able to say um but if you're ready to to to, to do that and to listen in the right way to that input it was uh, amazingly insightful yeah. the stuff that came out the other thing so the other thing I'd like to ask you about, because you've got some great stories about your son, but also um, sort of there are all the things in the in the like the keynote talk that you did at Leonardo Scotland about the kind of special uh, ways in which people with different 
different minds can can offer things that neurotypical people can't. I mean, I'm thinking of the example of the the estimates, for example. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but like, t- yeah, tell us some stories about like cool things that people who aren't neurotypical can can do. The superpowers. Yeah, yeah. So okay, so so people with people with um, ADHD which we often think about as like, actually, I can't concentrate at all. There's too much going on. People, people with ADHD often can do this thing called hyperfocus, where as, as long as they're interested in something, they can focus in kind of like almost to almost a supernatural extent. They can just like exclude the rest of the world, zoom in on what they're doing and sustain that intense kind of focus on something for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. So ADHD has hyperfocus. Um, the other thing that um, people with ADHD um often are able to do is very good tangential tangential thinking so whereas we might be stuck on a, actually you know this is how you solve this kind of problem I'm going in a very logical stepwise kind of a path through it um folks with ADHD can just can tangent off and come up with really fantastic novel solutions so um so that's one um, it's a known thing and there's been lots of lots of good experiments from the cognitive science side that people with depression actually have a more balanced view of reality um, than um, than people who are neurotypical so for example uh, people who are neurotypical ridiculously 90 I think in, in American 97 percent of people that were asked thought they were in the top 50 percent for driving ability which clearly statistically just <laughs> isn't possible we can't 97 people can't 97 percent of people can't be in the top 50 percent um and the, even when people in hospitals were asked you know um who'd had driving accidents they still thought they were better than average drivers and the group that um that weren't like that, that gave a very balanced view of their own abilities were people with clinical depression. So um, I don't know what that says about, about us as, a, as a, the human race in that we're, you know, the, the, the neurotypical folk have, have kind of got an overly positive outlook in on the world but maybe from an evolutionary point of view that's not been such a bad thing right because we've tried stuff that we maybe shouldn't have been able to do and we've succeeded and that's helped us evolve um however it it, it, it kind of makes a lot of sense when you start thinking about um estimating and and stuff like that and yeah and, and, and trying to kind of think about risks and and stuff because you, you need you need to do that sometimes with with projects don't you yeah, yeah. I think there's some stuff in in Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. I'm trying to think of the name of the bias, but there is definitely a bias. He talks about that that people have uh, that, that thing you're talking about with the with the uh, estimating your own ability at driving. But it's also the same thing about like entrepreneurs um, having a, a an irrational belief in the ability of their company to succeed, mm. um, where actually the odds will tell you that it's probably not going to. Mm. Um, Oh, cognitive biases are crazy. You, know, you start <laughs> when I, when I read too much about <laughs> cognitive biases, it's almost like I can't function afterwards because I'm I've become hyper aware of all my biases. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so so with aut- um, autis- with autism, um, autists uh, um, and again, I, it's difficult because I don't want to do these crazy generalizations. Yeah. Many autists. Um, are good at repetitive tasks 
um, and are good at seeing patterns as well. So um, we're seeing more and more recruitment of um, autistic people um, in areas like testing and data cleansing. Um, because they can pick up on, and it's almost like in a gut feel where I think they can pick up really quickly on when things don't, when things don't look right, like that's, mm. that's duplication or, you know, they're really good at noticing, noticing the details. Um, so, um, and doing repetitive tasks is actually really soothing. Right. Whereas someone like me just get, gets really bored and then starts to get angry. Right. And, and wants to automate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who me? No um you know which which for lots of things makes sense you know but when there are when there are uh repetitive things that do need doing i don't think we need to assume that actually no everyone on our team will feel the same way as us about them because that's the thing isn't it it's this it's this understanding that that like you're saying like you really don't like repetitive tasks and you want to automate them and, and you and you hate doing them and you get angry and all that kind of stuff but actually there might be someone on your team who'd love to do that task and for whom it works really well that it's that it's repetitive and 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 feels nice and and safe and reassuring and and all that kind of stuff yeah that's fascinating soothing that's a that's that's really cool yeah i think i read about a company in denmark is it who were specifically recruiting for autists um for for doing testing yeah so so there's a company called there's a company called specialistern who as far as i know were kind of the first company to and i I could be wrong but as far as i know they're the first company who specifically like they they take and train and they're um autists as either you know tends to be in data cleansing or testing um and then place them with clients Oh, well, they do work internally as well. Um, so they're, they're, they're kind of like a, a software house or a testing house made up of, of, um, of autistic folk. Um, but I think <laughs> the only thing I slightly struggle with there is I'm all about the diversity. And just like I'm a bit of a feminist, but I wouldn't want to work on a team that's only women, I don't think, because that's not very diverse. Um, I like the idea of the diversity. So I like the idea that these software houses are placing placing um autistic folk in teams you know in in teams that aren't exclusively um, made up of autists too um because i think it's i think it's in the mix i think it's the mix that's a good thing i really do yeah yeah that's where the magic is isn't it is in in, is in people valuing the difference and the and the kind of tension that comes from the difference is where yeah that's where the power comes from i think Mm, mm. And I've had people with ADHD, you know, even agile coaches that say that um, that the fact that they pick up on a lot of peripheral details uh, makes them, funnily enough, much, much, it's much easier for them to empathize and that it's almost like they've got um, a spidey sense of what's going on with people a little bit more. They feel like they, they, they can pick up on things that that guide them in certain areas of like, well, let's explore this a little bit or whatever because they're 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 seeing those little details that other people aren't seeing and sometimes you hear the same with people with autism actually so that the uh the assumption is autistic folk don't make eye contact because they don't think eyes are very important or they you know they they don't like doing sociable stuff um but actually now that more and more um research is showing that actually they get too much feedback from people's faces and it 
to the extent where it's it's kind of overpowering so it's not that it's not the not getting feedback from people it's the like actually actually that's too much feedback um yeah so i can't do that intense um intense eye contact i also find it really difficult talking about eye contact especially i can actually see you on a video link at the moment and now i'm kind of like trying to work out whether yeah, what level of eye contact's now. right it's, you get kind of paranoid about it but um yeah so so i think you know some of the some of the myths about uh autists not being able to be sociable or not caring about people or or um not being able to make eye contact because they're not really you know they don't feel very uh, don't get much feedback from it turns out actually it could be the other way and it might be that they're intensely getting feedback which i think is really interesting too yeah and then that's actually getting in the way of them being able to sort of process it in a in a in a way that a, a neurotypical person might do at a conference recently there was uh, temple grandin spoke and she put up a slide where they'd done eye tracking of a neurotypical person and then an, an autist um speaking to the same person and 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 you could kind of see the red lines of where their eyes had gone when they were talking and the neurotypical person was it was mainly on the person they were talking to's eyes and then occasionally you could see that they'd flicked off and looked at a sideboard or flicked off and looked at the door or whatever but predominantly on the person's eyes and the um the autistic eye track was a very uh, quite a bit of chin and but really lots just going all over the place to get cues from um you know the environment or looking away so it was really fascinating to see that in some in some actual research rather than oh it feels like this is happening um and and there's also been some research being done now with with uh, brain scans and things so again temple grandin's brain is structurally very difficult different to a normal neurotypical brain the bits of her brain that process uh pictures are uh have many 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 more um more more pathways and are much much more built up than they are in the typical brain and then other parts are diminished um compared to typical yeah, so we're we're definitely not talking about people who like are sort of uh, like less capable than somebody who was born neurotypical. We're talking about people who are just their brains are different. They are they're they're better at some things and and worse at others. And yeah. it's and it's more that we're kind of conditioned to think that people uh who don't have naturally have social skills are, are kind of must be just less useful yeah and and, and that's I, what i see absolutely absolutely and 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 also i sometimes hear just well kind of getting to the edge of the subject but but uh, it's an interesting thing that i've only just started thinking about a bit i sometimes have people saying to me oh well you know there's somebody who is really is really difficult or is really obnoxious or whatever um could it be that they're autistic um and, you know, there's every type of autistic person, just like there's every type of neurotypical person. At the same time, autism doesn't give you a certain belief system. So I had someone recently, oh gosh, I don't know if I'm allowed to be political or not. I had someone recently say to me, oh, you know, Donald Trump, I think he's just autistic. And that's why he misjudges, you know, what he should, the way that he should talk and what he should say and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, well, do you know what? I don't think autism is a 
related to your belief system in that way. I think the fundamental beliefs that he holds, he holds like that it's not to do with his neurology, it's to do with his beliefs. And those for me are quite different. And also the thing about his behavior that I find quite different to most autists um, that I know or know about or myself or have dealt with is that when autistic people um, get it wrong socially, right, they they really struggle, like they, they, they withdraw, <laughs> they go, oh, I got that wrong. <gasps> and they kind of panic a bit and they feel dreadful about it. And they try not to go in that kind of environment. They certainly don't come out all guns blazing, telling everybody else how wrong they are. That's what sociopaths do, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I think, and I, and I think, again, some people have, have, have suggested to me, oh, do you think a, a, a psychopath, psychopathic leader or a sociopath is the same as an autist? And, and, and absolutely, absolutely not. Cause actually when I've worked for, um, you know, exec that are a little bit that way, um, they're masters of working out what other people's motivations and thoughts are and how to then, um, and how to then use that to their benefit, you know, and be very strategic about, 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 thinking about you know how can I how that person's this way motivated okay how can I kind of get them to do what I want and all that kind of stuff whereas your 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 typical autist would you know that 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 just wouldn't be a thing that that they could do yeah so I, I just think what's wonderful about what you're doing is you're educating people so these are these are things that uh you know even though I'm interested in it and I've got some personal experience of some of these um these different characters we've been talking about. Um, I don't know. I'm, I feel pretty poorly educated. So I think it's great that you're sort of, because the first thing to do is to be able to recognize like, aha, so maybe that's what's behind this behavior that I, 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 I think is a bit weird from this person. And you can start to understand them and then therefore then maybe change things so that, so that they're more comfortable and you can get along better. Where can people go to find out more? Sal, where can they go to find out more? Okay. So, um, uh, I have written a little book, uh, which is very minimum viable product kind of book of experiments called the Inclusive Collaboration Experiments. It's available on Lean Pub. It's free, or if you want, you can pay for it, but it's free. Um, um, so you can go there. I specifically um, didn't want to create a model for people to say, make your organization like this or do these things or whatever. So, so the experiments in that book are specifically about getting people to start thinking, getting people to start recognizing things in their own workplace that maybe aren't very inclusive to get people thinking about some experiments in there that you can do about how would it feel if my brain just wouldn't go along the same path as, as other people's. Um, there's kind of little field trips that we suggest people go on and sit in the, their work environment and just intensely think about what am I hearing now? What am I seeing? How many unknowns are coming up? How would that feel if I struggled with, you know, my, if I had sensory issues or whatever? Um, so you can look there on Twitter. We're at Inclusive Collab. Um, we're in the process of getting a website together. That's not quite up yet. But in the meantime, if you go onto the Twitter um, uh, profile, there's a link to the um, webpage from uh, the Lean Agile Scotland 
uh, campaign and that's just the beginning of a campaign so you'll see us out and about at conferences we've got stickers and badges and <laughs> and posters and things like that um we've got a workshop that we can offer as well um we're going to start doing that at conferences um we're also running at a couple of companies um and there was one other thing that i wanted to mention i've forgotten what it was well, you let us know afterwards because we'll make a, <laughs> when we write the blog post, yeah. we can put all these things in as links. So just let us know when it occurs to you. Cool. If you're listening to this podcast and if you would like to learn more about BDD and Cucumber, you should head over to cucumber.io slash school and check out our videos. We've got three hours of premium quality content and you will get 10% discount if you use the code cucumber podcast in one word